This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we're starting our virtual show. I'm Matt Ryan, Polytheater Director. Welcome to Virtual Script to Screen Disaster Artist. We're so excited to have the screenwriters of this Oscar-nominated uh, screenplay from the film. In honor of Tommy Wiseau, I'm going to introduce you in his style. <laughs> oh, hi, Scott. Oh, hi, Mark. Mike. Okay. You knew. You guys knew a joke had to come. I had to do one Tommy joke. <laughs> uh, Tommy, so, by the way, Tommy actually introduced the, us at the premiere and introduced Scott and I as in the cast. So nothing can really <laughs> top that. <laughs> that is gold. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to Billy. The Room is such a massive cult classic. What, what, guys, what drew you guys to the project? We were sent the book, The Disaster Artist, written by um, Tom Bissell, who's like a, a celebrated and accomplished uh, nonfiction writer and essayist, and Greg Sestero. And uh, neither of us were, were um, room, uh, fans of The Room. We, we knew about it. And Scott, you saw the billboard all the time in L.A. Um, but we read the book first, which I guess maybe is a weird way to, to come to it. And, and both of us just uh, flipped for the book. I should say the book was sent to us by um, Seth Rogen and his producing partner, Evan, and James Franco. And we didn't know any of those guys. We hadn't met them. We'd never worked with them. Um, so we were, we were a little curious why they sent it to us. Um, so after we read it, we had our first meeting. And we were kind of anxious because we thought, well, if they want to do the kind of um, this is the end Pineapple Express version of this story which is a movie we would totally go see. We're just not the guys you would turn to to write something like that. Uh, for us, when we read the book, we were thinking about um, Sunset Boulevard and Ed Wood uh, and, and, and um, sort of much more of about a, a, a character piece about friendship um, and, and these two dreamers. And uh, what was exciting was the first time we met with uh, uh, all those guys, Inside of five minutes, they, they brought up Boogie Nights and Sunset Boulevard and basically all the same comps we were talking about. And uh, we kind of knew, okay, we're, we're at least like, we're all on the same page. We're talking about making the same kind of movie. So Scott, what was your reaction when you first saw The Room? Yeah, so I um, really loved the, the book. Um, and when I had been driving past that billboard, like most people, I was kind of like, what, what is that? Is that a you know, is that there's a phone number on it and it doesn't have credits like a regular movie and it's been up for like two years and like, it just, you didn't know what they were advertising there. And so I read this book and I said, oh, that's what that is. So I immediately went and got a copy and I watched it um, in bed uh, on my laptop and my wife kept looking over being like, what is happening? <laughs> what are you doing? And I was like, no, there's something really interesting here. And then she'd look over and be like, you're watching it again? And I'm like, no, they're using the same scene that you looked over last time. And, and it's just that kind of crazy movie. Um, and Weber's right, we, we, we sort of loved it and were terrified that someone was gonna write the comedy version of it when you know, there's, there's a true beautiful story here about dreams and, and about friends. Um, and we always approached it as this as a drama. We knew that the the people involved were going to be really funny, and obviously the story itself is so crazy that it, it lends itself to laughter. Um, but we never wanted to punch down. We never wanted to make fun of any of these people. We actually found them um, pretty inspiring, 
And as long as everybody was on the same page with that, we knew that we could write a, a good version of this of this narrative. Did you guys ever actually go to one of the screenings? Yeah, um, we. Did you ever go? I went afterwards, but I didn't go before. If you remember, I didn't. We didn't tell our producing partners. I actually didn't watch the movie at first, so we didn't. We didn't want them to understand our process. But sort of by design, Scott became kind of the 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 expert on the room, and I became the outsider. So that way, when we approached uh, um, parts of the book that required understanding the movie. Uh, we made sure we were constructing a movie that would work for people who never even heard of the room. Which is most people. Uh, and we were, we went to, uh, after the first draft, I think we went um, as you went a, without me to this. You're saying we, one of uh, you, LA you screenings were. in Westwood. Um, and Tommy was there and the whole, the whole thing. Um, and I'd watch a two hour version of that because it, it's just, that experience <laughs> is incredible. Um, from the people who show up to Tommy has this marketing situation that's happening around it where he's selling underwear and um, it's just a really fascinating um, kind of bubble to be in uh, and so funny and immediately you know things that weren't in the draft we were like oh we, we didn't even notice that but the, the fans pointed out and you're like we have to figure out a way to get that in and um, it was really instructive. All right, so let's go. But you mentioned you mentioned the book. Um, so, what was your collaboration with the two book authors, or how much interaction did you guys have with them? None at first. Um, they they um, I, I think to the to the credit of our fellow producers, they sort of kept Tommy and Greg uh, uh, away from us while we were writing, um, because they we, we were just wanted to write the best movie. Uh, based on this book and we knew Tommy's input would come and to sort of hold that off as, as long as possible. Tommy negotiated his own contract um, and uh, in it he negotiated, um, we had to shoot a scene that he was in with him opposite Franco and Tommy had, uh, he got wardrobe, makeup and, and the name of his character approval but he, ne he neglected to negotiate. He, he only negotiated that we had to shoot it. He didn't actually negotiate that it had to be put in the movie. Uh, although it, it, if you see the movie, it's after the credits now, a, a fun little sort of Easter egg, hopefully launching the uh, Tommy Wiseau cinematic universe. But the other thing he negotiated was um, that he got to give notes on the script, but he didn't uh, um, negotiate that they were given to us. So one of the other producers was tasked with uh, a series of phone calls that I believe lasted around 12 hours um, of listening to all of Tommy's uh, uh, notes, which weren't really notes. They were more like him bringing up past grudges with people he made the room with. So, so like Seth Rogen's Sandy character, kind of a, uh, that guy think he make the movie, he say he direct the room. Like Tommy had spent an hour ranting about that, which isn't really a script note. Um, <laughs> So that's sort of why they were very smart to keep all those guys away from us so we could kind of just focus on uh, what what the best movie was that we saw. We, we've written a lot of adaptations. This was our first uh, true story, but um, we've adapted a bunch of books. And our process is the same um, on all of them, really, which is whether it's John Green or, or whoever, um, we kind of like want to get a draft down that um, they'll be the first 
reader of and, and um, get their feedback afterwards. But the more involved they are in the process of getting it down, um, the more I think it kind of can get a little sideways. So we, we've had good luck with, um, with getting authors to trust us and then really having a good rapport with them once the kind of um, the groundwork's been laid for the adaptation. Scott, do you remember there was a scene we thought we invented? We had to truncate, because obviously there's always some uh, creative, uh, uh, um, not liberties, but like, you know, we have to apply our craft to the story, otherwise it would be a, an 11 hour movie. Um, and, and there were some things we truncated, some things that we, we, we thought we were inventing in the spirit of stuff that happened. And then I remember Greg, um, Greg was on set quite a bit and we were shooting one of these scenes that we thought we invented and Greg was like, no, that actually happened. So we, we, I guess we so got in the mind of Tommy uh, that we were, we were summoning things that, that actually happened because we had such an understanding of the guy, which is a little scary. So Scott, he never said you're tearing my script apart, you know, my room script apart or... <laughs> um, I, I, you know what? To this day, I have no idea if he thinks it's good or not. I really, I really don't know. I think Do you remember he complained about we didn't write him enough lines for his one scene? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got gripes. Like, but um, I think he, uh, he was very... We, I think he, we watched, we sat behind him at one of the first screenings, and I think he was very emotional, and he was... Um, He's a really sweet guy. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating experience overall. Tom Bissell said something really interesting because he spent years working on the book uh, with Greg. Tom is really smart, a brilliant writer. He said, you know, um, the, the kind of love and respect, uh, respect for like what Tommy went through and the sort of journey of, of making the room and, and, and his the years of, of, of struggle that he, he, he ended up getting that off of the disaster artists, but all of that is sort of what he was hoping for when he made the room, which I thought was really interesting. So when, um, so, but in some ways the room is not a great screenplay, not structured well, I'll, I'll say <laughs> that, but you know, so you're basing your screenplay off that screenplay. Well, were the concerns are like, how do I write, how are we going to write a screenplay you know, that's structured well or tells a good story, but understand that the, the base of it is based on something that's terrible, no screenwriting person should do. We weren't smart enough to be like, oh wait, we could do whatever we want. And if it's terrible, we'll be like, no, that's what we meant to do. <laughs> it's an homage, it's supposed to be terrible. Um, the book is actually structured so that you're on set of the movie, then you flash back to some, some of the like, how did we get to here? Then you're back on set and then there's more flashbacks. And we, as much as we loved reading that, um, it seemed like the best structure for the movie would be to do it a little bit more in a linear fashion. Um, and we don't know who these people are. We've got to make you care about them. We've got to make you understand why this is a special movie when it does happen. Um, and I think that requires a lot of uh, buildup. And so there was some conversation of like, can we get to the shooting faster? Can we just do the whole movie as the shooting? And we didn't believe that that worked. Uh, and I think we qu quickly convinced everybody of that. But um, I remember that was an early discussion when we were trying to structure the, the best way to tell the story. Yeah, I think the two, the two, um, the biggest discussion and the biggest challenge were two different things, but I don't think either one of them were, had to do with the fact that the script for the room is so bad. The biggest conversation really between us and sort of the, uh, the people we were making it with was, 
uh, Scott and I always believed from the start that the, the stakes were, can the friendship survive the ordeal of making what's arguably one of the worst movies of all time or, you know, one of the most chaotic productions? But can the friendship survive? Which the stakes being friendship are something we can all relate to. And there were definitely people in our, in our group who for a while thought maybe the stakes of it are, are they making a good movie or a bad movie? But that feels less emotional to us, less relatable. It's, 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 um, it also doesn't work because if it's a good movie, you would have heard of it. And if it's a bad movie, or you, if you have heard of it, you know it's a bad movie. So there, there, there's no real surprise or suspense there. You can't hang a whole film on that. Right. And that, so that was in some ways the biggest discussion among the producer group. I think the biggest challenge for us when we were writing, and the book is brilliant, and there's really, there was so much there, an, an, an embarrassment of riches, both about the production and the, and the friendship. But the toughest thing was, um, once they started making The Room, and it was a truly miserable and traumatic experience for, for everyone but Tommy, and but especially Greg, in some ways Greg was like the first one on Tommy's planet and then the last one to, to leave and, and then kind of came back. Um, but it was such a terrible experience for Greg uh, as detailed in the book, we spent so much time modulating and making sure it made sense why he didn't quit, why he didn't leave, and figuring out why he hung in there for as long as he did, going through that experience, um, especially uh, uh, when there were other opportunities, not, not necessarily starring ones and, and very small things, but... Um, that was the hardest thing for us to figure out because we kept saying one of the tools we like to use when we write is what would really happen. And you can't use that as much with a true story. We still rely upon it to try to understand motivations in, in specific scenes and, and sort of emotional turns. But the fact is Greg stayed and Scott and I kept going, we would have left. We would have quit. This is a nightmare. Like it's, even if you had nothing else going on, like it was at times, you know, borderline, uh, uh, this is a strong word, abusive, but like Tommy was a tyrant on set and maybe ultimately to his credit because the the movie, The Room is now this, you know, cult classic and, you know, rightly or wrongly for Tom, Tommy's behavior, uh, it, it was such a difficult experience for Greg. So um, that, that I feel like, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the toughest, figuring out how to make, make it understandable that Greg stayed for as long as he did was much harder than well, the script for the room was terrible. So then, Scott, so you have James Franco, who's a director and star. How is that relationship? Because you have to actually handle two different relationships, sort of like the overall scope of the screenplay, but also his character. So how was it working with him to try to develop those? <laughs> we had never, never worked with any of these people. Um, we had known James Franco's work as an actor and as a director. And for the most part, as a director, it's been like student films, straight to video. He's made like 35 movies. He was a big wild card for us. We were like, what exactly are we getting ourselves into with this guy? Uh, then he was playing Tommy. So like on the first day, um, he would walk in in full Tommy uh, outfit situation, makeup and all, um, disappears completely so that you do think you're with Tommy. He's talking in the accent, but he's giving you like script notes in the accent and you're not sure if you're, he's making a joke 
or if he's asking for your help for real. And it, it was it was such a bonkers experience. Um, by the end of the first week, we were like, holy crap, he's really good. He's an like not just as an actor, but as a director too. He was so much more on top of it than we were. When he would ask us these questions and Tommy speak, um, we would laugh, not realizing that he's asking a legit question. Um, and then when we would answer it, he'd be like, no, that's not right because here it's, like he knew the script better than we knew it. And um, it was extremely impressive that he could juggle all these things and four hours of makeup or however long it was. Um, and, uh, and the fact that he was playing opposite his little brother but they weren't playing brothers. They were playing polar opposites. And it just all of it was just, it was a real, like, um, surreal experience. Uh, but we felt unbelievably comfortable that he had it under control really quickly. Now, Michael, you mentioned it earlier. So you, if you went f f too much farce, it would have definitely destroyed the, the central core, the emotional relationship of the movie. So were there drafts where you guys were debating that? It's like, oh, we're going a little too more farcical and we're taking it, we're killing the relationship part or we're doing too much of the relationship that's taking away from the farce. No, I mean, because the book alternated chapters and I think that the odd chapters were the history of production and the even were friendship or maybe vice versa. We literally took apart the book and put aside the production stuff at first and just focused on the history of the friendship. Um, I think Scott, you're the one who, you've said this before, like. I mean, this could be about two guys who open a restaurant. It just so happens to be about two guys who make a movie. But for us, that the, the, the thing we gravitated towards wasn't the, the hijinks on set. I mean, that stuff is wild. Those chapters, you read the book and you're just, you're constantly laughing and you're in amazement at what, at what happened. But, but the, the, the idea of here are these two unlikely friends and, and the glue of that friendship is they share a dream and they share a dream in which no one else believes in them. And it's so powerful when you find someone else who, who believes in you when the, when the rest of the world is saying no. So we kind of were always going back to that, that that's what this was about, which is a, a very real thing and not farcical, despite Tommy's behavior being so off the wall at times. Um, and as long as we, you know, we didn't, we didn't always have to understand Tommy's choices, but I think like we, we always understood Tommy's, larger motivations were, were love and acceptance and friendship and, and this humongous fear of rejection. Um, and, and he went about getting those things in sort of all the wrong ways, but we at least understood that those things he wants are, are kind of what, what everybody wants. I think we, we wrote 500 Days of Summer and Spectacular Now and, and Fault in Our Stars. If you were coming to us for the Laugh Riot farce version of this movie, you're terrible at your job. And we, we knew that like, they're the funny people. Like We're gonna write the best script we know how to write. And then the storyline itself is, is comical. It has a lot of unbelievably funny bits. The people we were partnering with are all so funny. Um, and it was a really good marriage and, and a smart one looking back of, of um, everybody kind of working to their strengths. So um, we, I think the balance between the comedy and the drama, um, I, we were responsible for the drama stuff and we felt pretty confident that, um, that it, would, it would find its way um, to the right tone considering our partners. Yeah, and by the way, echoing Scott, what you were saying before, like all the best directors we've worked with, including James, um, they're really great at this balance. Uh, uh, and the balance is when you're making it sort of um, 
creating an environment where everyone, not just the, the writers, the actors, everyone, the cast, everyone uh, feels safe to take risks. But the other side of that balance is also protecting the script. So, so you know, we were working with all these funny people who were taking chances and trying things, and there was some funny stuff that, that people were attempting, but at the same time, James always made sure, like, we got enough takes of, the, of, the, of what was scripted, so we always had that. And then if exploration led to something worthwhile, great. And, and because this wasn't something like uh, This Is The End, which has, like, a lot of improvisation, we, we were told, um, I think most of what you see in the movie is, is what was scripted, um, things like the montage of auditions, of, of actors auditioning for the room. A lot, some of that was scripted, a lot of that improvised. So, so there's stuff like that where actors were allowed to really explore and roam and go crazy. But James really always made sure, like, the script, he was as fiercely protective of the script, uh, if not more so than we were. So that's, it's great when you get a, uh, find a director who, can, who, who has that balance. What was the decision to start with the opening of having the different actors talk about the room, Kristen Bell and some of the others? Well, I think we, we talked a lot about the fact that um, we didn't believe anyone was going to ever make The Disaster Artist because not enough people knew what we were talking about. And um, in order to kind of establish that this was a real thing in the real world, we wanted to come up with some idea that would just sort of hold your hand if you were new to this and you were coming to a movie and you didn't really know anything. What are they talking about? When we, when we tested it for the first time, a lot of the people at the end um, were like, that was a really funny character that James was doing. Um, I don't know why you know, they chose this subject matter of all the things they could have done, um, thinking it was all fictional. And so the more work we could do to kind of tell you from the beginning that like what you're about to see is something that is in existence in the real world. Um, we, we kind of really insisted that that was necessary to enjoy this movie in the right way. Wasn't there, there was a test screening or something without it, right? Wasn't there? It was even, it was still there, but it was truncated and it wasn't oh, okay. doing, doing the work. Um, with like Chirons and it really wasn't selling it as hard. Um, but at the end, the, the, the people who were watching it had absolutely no idea still that that was not a fictional story. I was, because uh, it's really the heart of the movie is a relationship. The James Dean scene really affected me because mm -hmm. it really shows Tommy is let's just do it. Let's not waste our lives. And, you know, Greg is still a little nervous and shocked. How do you approach that scene? Because I know it's part of it was based on reality, but it was such a pivotal scene to set up their dynamics and why, like you said, they're together. Why yeah, we, we, we really, um, we fought hard for the, the first act, <laughs> I think, uh, to really establish this, this, what's different about the two of them, what do they need about each other, um, and I think Weber and I kind of weirdly related to them in terms of, like, this attitude of um, who cares if you get made fun of, who cares if you get rejected, how are you ever going to know if you can make it unless you try, um, and having, you know, the Greg character... Is, is sort of terrified to put himself all the way out there and he's afraid to fail and he's afraid of rejection and he's afraid to be mocked. And you have this other guy who's like, we just do it. We got to go and we just do it. And I feel like that's um, a relatable thing despite the fact that these are two very unrelatable characters um, in a lot of other respects. Yeah, I also was struck by the scene where he gets berated by Judd Apatow. The first time Tommy realizes that maybe he's not a star or is as good as he thinks. So how much is that, was that real? How much did you guys embellish? Or how much did you have experience like that 
pitching to producers, that sequence. That he was definitely never, uh, uh, Tommy Wiseau never ran into Judd, who's not playing Judd, but, uh, but Judd has since told us that people think, A, he's playing himself, and B, that he hates Star Wars, which is kind of funny. Um, and, and, uh, but Tommy, um, by, by most accounts, would, would go around Hollywood um, and, and sort of, if he saw anyone famous, kind of get up in their face and, start, and be like, this is my big break. And, and audition, or later on, press a copy of The Room on them. Um, I guess there's a story where after he made The Room, I think it was Jane Fonda he met somewhere, and he was, like, trying to get her to watch The Room and giving her a copy of it. And uh, he famously bothered uh, Clint Eastwood once. Uh, so, like, it, it's, you know, this was who Tommy was. We so heard that, we, we, we we heard that amazing. Start casting a scene like that where Tommy bothers someone in a restaurant. What's the amazing story that, that um, he walked up to a very famous person, he wouldn't tell us who it was. No, oh. And he was like, he was like, I need, you just tell me, I need to know what your advice is to make it and everything else. And the guy's response was like, keep going. And I, and like, I always read that as like, keep going, like goodbye. But Tommy was like, it was the greatest piece of advice. You just keep going. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> that should have been in the movie. So how did you guys approach which scenes from the movie get refilmed or included in what's, I know there's some no-brainer scenes, but was there any conversations like, what are you going to put from the room into it and which scenes you're going to leave out? Well, one of the things that was very helpful was that Weber actually hadn't seen it. And so if any, uh, if anything that I was like, this is so funny and it has to be in there, um, but then it took a lot of like gymnastics to explain to Weber what I was talking about, then it was going to take too much to be a funny scene for but if you had to sort of walk me through it like why it was funny or how it was weird then it was too hard to translate but also i'd say this like one of the things that we also spend some time on crafting is for the most part all of the production scenes the ones that are like substantial scenes there's there's character stuff going on there as well it's not just production hijinks so only the ones that are sort of more like quick hits are really just there for the comedy. Most of it, though, you're watching this sort of the, the progression of the friendship deteriorating. Some of my favorite things we, we, we couldn't get in there. Um, just like the fact that um, there's a scene where um, there's a phone call and Tommy's recording the phone call secretly um, in the room. And then later on, he plays it back and we've all heard it. But when he plays it back, it's a different conversation. And that, like, to, to figure out how to do that um, in our construct was just too challenging. But there were enough good things in there that we definitely could pick and choose and, and um, not feel like we were undercutting the, the funny. All right. So, of course, we got to talk about the high mark scene. Hi, hi, Mark. Um, you got Tommy being nervous, first time acting, 67 takes, the crew getting agitated. For that, there's a lot going on in that scene that could have gotten really lost. So how did you kind of like sift through that to kind of make sure everything is, the drama is still there, but was of course laughing at the bad acting. Yeah. I, that was the funniest, that was the single funniest day on set for me. I mean, it just, we were in tears laughing so hard. And I think uh, we had scripted it out so that it was hopefully funny, but we could, there was sort of an arc to that, the, the mounting frustration. Um, and, and a lot of it's to James's credit that while, like, he really went wild exploring and then we let sort of Seth and Paul Shear and others kind of explore their reactions, we made sure we got what was scripted. So that way when we, when, you know, in post, 
there was, there was uh, once again, like an embarrassment of riches to work with. So we could craft a, a, a sequence together the right way and we made sure we had everything. Now, I was struck, was again about the friendship, uh, because I could see why you want to leave Tommy, because Tommy was, you know, had some issues. Uh, but when the pain on Tommy's face, when uh, Greg says him he's moving out, the restaurant scene, how important was that scene for you guys to kind of now show the vulnerable side of Tommy or why he's, you know, so emotionally needy of Greg? Yeah, I think that's everything. It feels like the, the story is, is somebody who, um, you know, thinks he's trying to control his world. Uh, a filmmaker like like a Tommy Wiseau, I think, is um, has has a harder time with not being in control of his environment. And this friendship that was really important to him, um, when it starts to look like his friend is pulling away, um, it's super heartbreaking for him. And in his mind, he's just created. Why can't everything be like? like the, the room where he can control all the things that are happening. And, and if you look at the room, sort of the message of the room is that you can't in real life. Everybody does something to Johnny. They're all messing with Johnny in different ways. And he's this martyr. Um, and I think Tommy definitely saw himself in that role. Um, and the friendship was, a, was a, I think, a perfectly spot on encapsulation of what Tommy's deepest issues are. And if you watch this, uh, you have no deep issues. You're, you're perfect. Everything's great, Tommy. I didn't say that. <laughs> but it also sets up the next scene where uh, the, the sex scene he's shooting, where he's totally body shaming, horribly treating the actress and the crew. But did you need that kind of to show the pain he was doing it to kind of move to what his reaction, the reaction to that, the fallout? I don't know how we would have, first of all, like, what, the, what happened in that scene really happened and is in the book that, that he sort of uh, was, uh, uh, it was a day where he showed up completely naked. He wanted an open set. He wanted everyone to look at him. Um, and, and he made a lot of people uncomfortable. I think, um, I don't know. I, I don't see a world where we, we weren't including that scene. I mean, we had to. It's such a... Um, the way, uh, it's, it's so hard for Greg to defend Tommy after that. And he was already struggling to defend Tommy's behavior before that. It was a lot of like, you don't know him the way I do. You know, he's not such a bad guy. He's just misunderstood. You know, Greg keeps trying after that, but kind of everybody else is really over Tommy. Between that and, and you know, no water which there was no water sort of throughout production. And we kind of um, uh, used some craftsmanship to sort of really highlight that in one particular scene. But between the sex scene and the, the, the how hot it was and no water, you know, the, 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 the cast and crew turn on Tommy and really don't come back after that. There's no, you know, they've given up on him or given up on the movie. And sort of Greg's kind of the last believer left on, on Tommy's planet. So Scott, then I know in the next scene you have Greg, you know, Tommy saying no to Greg doing the Malcolm in the Middle scene. So at that point, did you need Greg to leave? Because at this point, where the audience is going to be like, we're losing Greg if he's going to let the sex scene go, and now this. Yeah, it seemed like Greg is going to be the audience's eyes and ears and kind of um, emotional sort of handholder through through much of this. Um, when Greg turns on Tommy, that's when I think um, it's there's no going back. 
and I think we we spent a lot of time being like, when is that? When is that moment that um, he's the friendship and the guilt and the pity that Greg sort of does have for his friend? Um, when does that all evaporate so that you know Tommy crosses a line and, and there's and it's um, it's the end? Uh, and for us, we sort of constructed this idea that that Greg gets this offer and all he wants his friend to do it's this thing that he really was hoping throughout their friendship that he could get. He could be a legitimate star or, or actor in a, in a legitimate project. Um, and when he gets it, instead of the friend um, being happy for him uh, or, you know, allowing him the day to go and do it, um, he kind of doubles down and says, I, you know, you're tied with me. You can't go anywhere unless I go. It's essentially what he's saying. Um, and uh, that's when I think Greg is kind of like a friend wouldn't do that. And I've been defending you, and I've been prioritizing our friendship over all of your mad behavior throughout this process. And now what you're saying is it's about the work and not about the friendship. And that, to us, was um, the moment at which Tommy should lose everybody. Because, Michael, I did like that. Because the opening, you had the funny opening with my, uh, them playing football together, and Tommy can't throw the ball. Then the breakup scene, which is almost the exact same scene. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it was a nice little clever. Is that something you guys wanted to bookend it that way or kind of naturally flowed? Yeah, I think it highlighted the fact that, like, um, while the shoot was tough, Tommy, I think, was uh, compartmentalizing the work relationship and the friendship and thinking everything was fine. And, and um, you know, it was the breaking point for both the the – at, at that point, Greg was sort of uh, knowing the movie would be a disaster and the work relationship deteriorating. But at that point, also, uh, for, for Greg, the friendship is over as well. So, I don't know, it made sense to us that it, it sort of mirrored some of those early beats of how the friendship started. And it seems like Tommy is aware um, and kind of wants to go back in time they go back to san francisco they're just two guys in the park they're throwing the football like old times they're they're buddies again and greg is done with it and it's like no the 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 real life and movies are two separate things man and he doesn't seem to understand that um and i think you know tommy is hoping that he can bring greg back uh and for us the growth of greg is being able to let go and say it's not worth it so we got to talk about the end sequence. Of course, the climax of the movie is the premiere. Uh, now, if I believe it was condensed, there was a few different premieres. I, I'm not sure of the truth. But how did you guys approach that sequence, moving from they're mocking him to that great, like, I'm exactly what I intended when he flips. How did you approach yeah, the whole movie premiere sequence? I don't think, um, so, so Greg goes his own way. The friendship is, is over. Um, and, and then he decides to go to the premiere and sort of things begin to get repaired. Um, in reality, no, the, 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 the uh, premiere was a disaster. Uh, more than half the people had walked out during it. I mean, it really, and Tommy was, was um, sort of devastated. Uh, and then gradually the movie started to be embraced uh, the way it's embraced now. And that took, um, that was a, a, a bit of a longer process that we condensed. Um, we felt the liberty to do that because for us, it was, um, it was about the friendship coming back together. 
And in some ways, it actually did take the, the, um, the, the movie being embraced the way it, it, it now is, uh, and Tommy sharing some of that credit with Greg for that friendship to be repaired the way it is today. Um, so so it, structurally, if you have a premiere and it's a, it's, a, it's a bummer, and then Greg and Tommy split off again, and then it's like, when are you getting to the curtain? It's, not, it's almost like a double third act in a way. Like it just structurally felt all off to us. And that you sort of want to get to the, the friendship sort of uh, getting back together and seeing that like these guys love each other and they need each other and, and, and support each other. And, and they realize they couldn't have done it without each other. Uh, so Scott, you mentioned earlier, there is so much after that movie that's fascinating, Tommy's whole marketing campaign. He rented a theater by himself, going four-walling, you know, the idea of totally marketing himself. He was brilliant. I mean, you know, the movie turned like that. Was there things like you could have wanted to explore more, but like Michael mentioned that you can't do a double third act? Yeah, it, I mean, for the spine of this one is really like, um, is this friendship gonna survive um, the room? And the all of the the aftermath of the room stuff um, is really interesting, but not the easiest thing to kind of dramatize because um, we we want to hint at the fact that like Tommy is doing all of his own marketing. So he we see him in the limo that he has rented with all of the flyers, and he's he's the one who's handwriting the the letter to, um, invitations to all these people, and like you see an element of the um, the hustle, um, and then. Uh, kind of, we, we, we went out and we filmed one of the um, room screenings uh, with a camera crew and you saw the real life footage of how, it, how the experience of watching the room has changed Tommy's life. Um, and we have, you know, all, all, that's all real footage. That's not James at the end, that's actually Tommy. Um, and it's complete just us leaving the camera on what really happened. Uh, and one of the things that I think we were surprised to discover is just how much people are rooting for Tommy. Um, I think when we finished draft one, we were like, that's a really interesting and complicated character. We're not sure that everybody's going to be behind him, but maybe that's okay. And then thanks to James's performance and, and a, um, a few tweaks here and there, I think by the end of this movie, you really do feel for him and feel great that he got um, a, a version of a Hollywood ending. And uh, and so I think it's a, it's a really nice kind of story, um, but uh, yeah, some some truth had to you have to you have to shade through the the end to make it cinematic, um, and lose a couple of the true things. But all of that information is out there. No one knows where he got the money and any of that stuff. But um, well, the funny thing is, the book the ending of the book doesn't exactly make you think that these guys are still best friends. The ending of the book, in some ways, is as if Greg is his own man now, and like he doesn't need Tommy as much, and they still talk. But Greg really like the things he needed Tommy for initially, he doesn't anymore because he's kind of his own person. And and we thought about and even toyed with an ending like that in the script. And then we saw we met these guys and saw them, and we were around them, and it's just not true that that, that they both need each other, and they talk every day, and they're still friends. And yes, the, the friendship fractured at one point, but then it came back together largely because of the success and the, the, the unexpected success of the room. So, um, you know, it, it, in, in some ways, our ending is, is actually more 
true to life than it is true to the ending of the book. Yeah. So what was there? What was so? What has been the reactions from the film, from like Greg and Tommy, or even some of the other people that were represented in the film? Greg seems to love it. Tommy, Tommy, we just said ninety-seven percent. We had a we had a work in progress screening at South by, and he said it was ninety-seven percent true. Um, but it, uh, he said that the movie was too dark. But he wore sunglasses the whole time in the theater, and then he saw it at the, the the real premiere, and again he said it was ninety-seven percent true. And when they asked him what was the three percent, he said, "That's not how I throw a football." So uh, that's you know when you're dealing with Tommy, like that's a pretty good. We'll take ninety-seven percent. Um, Greg's been great about it. Greg was really supportive the whole time, and and um, and and really positive about our work and, and how it turned out. Um, I don't know. I don't remember if we ever heard from that many other people who were in the room. We had, talked to Robin. Oh uh, yes, yes, yes. But she didn't come to the premiere. Yeah. Um, I'm a little traumatized. Yeah, there's. We we don't know. I, I don't. It's um. It's such an interesting moment in a lot of these people's lives. Some of whom um, are perfectly excited to revisit, and some people who kind of want to put it in the rearview mirror. Um, all I know is that we went to the Golden Globes and I saw Tommy approach Oprah and just be like, I'm a huge fan of yours. And she's like, oh, that's so nice. And then that, and then he came and sat down and I was just sort of like, that's amazing. Like, <laughs> like he's here and that we, like, I don't know, there was something extraordinary about his story. Um, and if it ended in that scene, like if I was writing it again, I'd be like, the last thing in the movie is, is Tommy Wiseau and Oprah having like at the bar together talk. Well, my, my, uh, my producer, Julie, is gonna bring some students on to ask you some questions. So I'm curious um, of what challenges you faced with trying to write Tommy's parts and portray his true essence. The true essence. Um, yeah, we had, so we had the source material of the, of the book. Um, there were a lot of articles. There were a lot of interviews. Um, we watched everything we could find on the guy. And then um, Franco got in his possession, um, when Tommy was first getting to LA, he would drive around in his car and talk into a tape recorder and would just talk to himself. Uh, about ideas, about how he was feeling. It was like a therapy session. And James got those tapes and sent, sent us the tapes. Uh, they still sometimes pop up on my, on my iTunes random thing. And I'm like, no, turn that off. But um, we, got, we kind of would get the, the, the cadence of his voice a little bit, which obviously James was going to kill no matter what. Um, and some of the little Tommyisms uh, that were, you know, just very specific to the guy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that kind of thing was very helpful. I hope we captured his essence. I still think there's a whole layer beneath that no one will ever be able to capture. Oh, thank you for coming. It was great to hear uh, your insight. Uh, I just wanted to know what the experience of team screenwriting is like compared to individual writing. Yeah, we've been doing this together now, oof, what, almost 20 years, I think? Yeah. Um, we, you know, uh, in some ways our process was built for quarantine uh, because even we met in New York, but we've, we were never writing in the same room. Scott was on the Upper West Side. I was on the Lower East Side. Now I'm still on the Lower East Side. He's in LA. I really um, need to get to Starbucks though. What'd you say? I, I would really, I need to get to a coffee shop. It's yeah, like, yeah. working from home is tough. Yeah, but it's, but our process has been the same since the beginning in that um, 
it's a lot of conversations, whether it's an adaptation or an original, it's a lot of conversations about just what's it about? Why, 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 would, why do we care? Why would anyone care? What's the version of this, of anything that we're talking about? What's the version that would get us excited to go see it? Because first and foremost, we're still two people who love going to the movies. Um, so it's a lot of like macro conversations that then gradually get more micro about character and potential bits for a story and, and, and what a three-act structure might look like. And, uh, uh, and, and, and eventually we'll get to a point of sort of trying to craft all this stuff uh, into an outline. And we'll spend uh, weeks outlining in some cases uh, uh, until that outline's pretty airtight because we found it's so much easier to solve problems if you're looking at, you know, an eight or 10 page outline to make sure everything's working. You know, the worst feeling in the world is if you're sort of writing and, and you get to page 50 or 70 or 90 and you're like, been 30 pages ago, you sort of start chasing your tail and morale starts dropping and you're like, oh, what am I doing? And it's not to say there aren't hiccups when we use an outline and certainly outlining is not the most fun process, but the writing goes so much more smoothly and so much faster. And it allows us to sort of, um, we don't write in the same room. So we'll kind of divide up batches of scenes and then email each other and then email each other back. Um, but a lot of the heavy lifting takes place really in the outlining uh, part of it. And that's really, um, it's been our process since the beginning. Thanks for talking with us guys. Uh, so 500 days of summer takes place over an extended period of time. Disaster Artist takes place over uh, several years. What's your advice for writing a focused story that spans over months or years? That's a good question. I, you know, um, I never really even think about it. Um, 500 was a, was a special case because that's, that's the premise, basically. The, the beginning and the end are, are kind of preordained. Um, it's baked in. Um, but we never really think about anything else that we're doing um, with regards to like how long does this take place um, or um, is there a right amount of time that it should should go I think um, for the most part um, we've done we've done I think about like spectacular now is over the course of you know a semester um, we've written things that are super short we've written things that are take place over a longer span, but I, I think it's kind of like story specific. Um, and um, is there enough story there that um, you can tell, you know, would you be as excited about the version of it that took place over a long period or, or a shorter period? I just finished watching like normal people. Um, and some of the entire, like some of the best episodes are really like a day. And then other ones, it's like, whoa, how did we get from here to here? That was like a bigger, bigger thing. Um, and I have that in the in the TV show we're doing now. There's episodes that take place over the course of, of um, a meal. And there's other ones that are like three years. And um, just hopefully it works. But. I think you, Scott, you and I sometimes have conversations that we're not concerned like, oh, it's sh that like, oh, wait, it's not enough time or it's too much time. But, but we will have conversations to make sure that the audience isn't confused about the time. So that the audience is like, wait a second, they just got there a day ago now. This is how, like, so we're, it's, we try to be aware of like, that, that the timeline, the pacing feels right within it, that there's an internal logic that you're not like 
huh, I thought this took place over three months, but I guess this is just 48 hours. Like, you know, we're, we're always mindful of like how the audience is going to experience the passing of time, but we're never feeling like, oh, this isn't enough or this is too much or like whatever the story needs to be. Tommy talks a lot about having a vision and a lot of the scenes in the movie seem very like dream or vision like and um, did a lot of the scenes live up to your own visions or how you how you saw them? I don't watch the movie now and think like that's not the way we wanted it to be, you know? Um, we've certainly been doing this long enough that we know it's, um, you know, this is, you collaborate and obviously a director comes in and has a vision for how it should look and feel and our job is to make a map for the director and for everyone else, but at the same time hoping that how it comes out resembles our, uh, you know, what we were hoping for. Um, I think um, we wanted the stuff that was gonna capture the room to feel like the room, but at the same time we wanted the stuff about the friendship to feel grounded and relatable, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of the real emotions of friendship. Um, I was wondering what it was like working with John Green, like comparatively to other um, writers, because I feel like John Green has such like a specific style and like he was kind of like a poster child for like adolescent. Like I remember when Fallen Our Stars came out and it was like such a big deal. So. Yeah, I mean, a actors are uh, actors, authors, not actors, are, um, are really, you know, um, people that we revere and, and look up to and are just amazed by. Um, and when we're kind of trusted with trying to turn one of their pieces of material into a movie, um, they're really almost always the first um, the first voice we want to bring in when we're ready to show anybody anything to make sure it's what they were talking about. That, that when you're asking the vision question, um, we got to make sure that we, we see it the same way that, that they see it um, and that all their fans see it who are going to come to it having read and loved the books the same way that we have. Um, uh, like I said before, our process with all these authors is almost identical no matter who they are, people who've never ever written anything before or like super luminaries like like John was. Um, and we don't really want to bring them in too early. We talk to them about what was important to them. We talk, sometimes we don't talk to them even, but um, uh, with John, we had lunch and we talked about why this was important, what he wanted to make sure didn't get um, thwarted. Uh, and he had attempted uh, to do Paper Towns himself uh, and kind of was like, I don't understand the movie language in, in the right way and didn't really have a good experience with that. So he trusted us to kind of bring that um, experience to, uh, to Fault. Um, and after we did Fault, he read it. He was really happy. Um, he wanted us to do uh, Paper Towns. We did a version of Alaska that almost got made as a feature. And he was really um, amazing with us. It got to the point where as we were going along, um, his notoriety was growing um, from when we first met him, where he was a very well-known um, kind of in a, in a certain bubble and then became this superstar. Uh, and we would eventually say to him, like, what are the lines that people are tattooing on their bodies that we know have to be in the movies? Like, we need your, we don't know the way you know what your fans are gonna talk about. Um, and that was a really helpful kind of resource. But um, yeah, I think it's really about protecting the author's vision, making sure that the author um, can stand by this thing. Because you hear a lot of times um, that they were cut out of the process and they aren't thrilled with the way that, that, that movies turn out. And we never want to be on that, on that end of, of, the, of the thing. Do you remember we couldn't, we always said like, we couldn't have done Paper Towns first 
because yeah. with Fault in Our Stars, we, I, we got the job by sort of telling the studio, we want to keep as much of the book as possible. We want the movie to feel like the book. We don't want to make big changes. And I think John was really appreciative that that was our approach. And at the time that John had sort of given up some rights with Fault in Our Stars, it wasn't yet this worldwide phenomenon of a book. So he was very nervous about what would happen potentially to the movie. And because we were so respectful, when, when, when we were approached about Paper Towns, um, we had said to John, we love this book, Paper Towns as well, but we're gonna have to make bigger changes and more deviations. And, and if, you, if you're familiar with Paper Towns, the, the book and the movie, um, in the book, Prom is in the middle. In the book, the main character kind of learns the lesson about Margot who ran away in the middle. Um, it's structurally, it, it's, it, the book is great, but it's not as closely structured the way you'd want to structure a movie. And we had, we had told John, we're going to, you know, the spirit of the book will be there, but we have to change things and make sure that um, it feels like a movie. And I think because we had proven uh, how much we care about his work and we work to preserve his voice, um, he, he, we had his blessing to kind of make those larger changes to Paper Towns that we didn't need to make to Fault in Our Stars. So we had earned his trust. Thank you guys for speaking with us. Um, this is kind of a general question, but you worked on multiple very impactful coming of age stories. And I was just wondering what kind of draws you towards that genre um, and that kind of storytelling. Um, they were my favorite movies growing up. I mean, that's, you know, it's sort of John Hughes was one of my heroes and Cameron Crowe. And so, uh, you know, I think for me, that's a big uh, part of it. I also think um, for a while, Hollywood was making them uh, with, they, and they, in, in different ways. Hollywood was making them for a while and it was largely about superpowers and, and, and um, uh, uh, you know, witches and wizards and, and, and or, or the other end of the spectrum kind of, you know, heightened hijinks of sex with a pie and other, like they stopped for a while, the industry stopped making sort of ones kind of um, more down the middle that were just emotionally honest and didn't need a, a kind of larger metaphor of powers or whatever. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's been exciting that, that we were given these opportunities around the same time that, the industry was making the, the versions of these stories that we like to tell. Cool. All right, so we end our show with the same question. Since we have students here, um, if you were going to assign one movie to them to watch for potential screenwriting students to study, what movie would you guys assign them to watch? My be-all, end-all movie is The Graduate, um, and it has been since I saw it when I was probably 14 or 15. And I watch it again several times a year. Um, and uh, it's just, to me, it's a, it's a perfect movie. And um, it's an adaptation of a book. It's a, it's, the script is incredible. And it was um, an interesting sort of backstory of that is that the, the initial draft was thrown out. Someone else came in, rewrote it from scratch, had to share credit. <laughs> so that's an invaluable lesson. And um, it's just, uh, it's, it's really incredible that it was made when it was made and how um, it changes every time you watch it, um, depending on what you bring to it. 
which I think is, um, I don't know how to teach that, but um, uh, it's a really, I think a very instructive movie to watch um, and script to read to kind of learn um, that these things are, they have a life of their own and they, I don't know. Um, I just can never get enough of it myself. Michael, what about you? What are you going to assign my students? Um, I think I'm going to go with Back to the Future. Uh, and, and, and it's obviously great for all the reasons we all know. It, it's so brilliant. And, and I find new things to appreciate about it every time I see it. One of the things that, though, on, a, um, on like a craft level, that's so interesting about that movie is watch it again and just pay attention to every transition. Like every what every scene goes out on and what every scene comes in on. Because every transition in that film is so brilliant. And it's every transition is a piece of information or something to do with the character or comedy or sometimes more, you know, more than one of those three things all in, in a transition. And the way that those, the transitions of that movie work are, are uh, I think like in some ways, a lot, the secret sauce of its uh, greatness. Well, I thank you guys so much for talking with us. Uh, it's been a great time to break down the movie with you. Of course, we want you in person once the pandemic ends, get you to our theater and actually talk directly to the students. But thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having us. Stay safe, everyone. Yeah, good luck, everybody, and thank you. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.